Hello, listeners. Welcome to Strength and Recovery Podcast. This is a very special holiday episode, and um, I'm so excited to be here with you today. And I'm so excited to be with our new alumni coordinator, new-ish, I guess, alumni coordinator. He's been with RCA a while, a beloved figure at RCA Monroeville, Lee, and um, and then Julie Toy, who's been an RCA alum and then a Mission Center employee and then now works at RCA Devon. Um, so thank you both for agreeing to be with me and um, to kind of tackle this topic. And, and we wanted to talk about parenting and recovery. And then I think the holidays, there are there is just so much pressure on parents during the holiday season. I don't care if you're in recovery or not. It's, you know, we compare ourselves to all the, the other people on social media, whether we want to or not, and what are they doing for their kids? And, you know, what are the holiday expectations? It's just, it, it, it can be a tough time. And so it's like, and it also can be a really joyous time, but um, we want to just talk about the challenges. So, Tell us a little bit about you um, as it relates to, I know, Julie, we've heard your story. Lee, we are booking you to tell your story. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit about you as it relates to um, your parenting. So, and and like, who do you parent? <laughs> I guess, is there a way to say that? I know, Julie, you're a mom. Why don't you start first? Sure. Uh, so yeah, I'm a single mom and, uh, I raised my daughter who just turned 15. Um, I've been pretty much raising her on my own for, I guess, since she was about six, um, with the help of my family and stuff like that. And, uh, I didn't get sober in her life till she was either nine or 10. Um, so yeah, she was just about 10 years old. Cause I'm just five years sober now. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, a tricky word to navigate. You're responsible for another human um, and you're barely able to be responsible for yourself. So coming into recovery and really having no life skills, but having this child that I'm responsible for was really tough to try to navigate. And um, there was a lot of pressure in having to learn those parenting skills really quickly. Um, and I can say like, I got sober in October so, um, the holidays were shortly to follow yeah. my daughter's birthdays in November. So I had like, I just got smacked right away. And, um, you know, like during my, during my addiction, I was always really good at overcompensating. So I always got her a ton of gifts because I had help from other people who didn't want her to wake up with like very little under the tree. Um, so when I got sober, I wanted that responsibility to be able to provide that life for her. But I still didn't have those finances together, um, you know, and early on in sobriety, like when I first got sober and got with my sponsor, she kept saying to me, like, the holidays are just another day. The holidays are just another day. But mm -hmm. for me, yes, the holidays are just another day for me to work my program and stay in recovery. However, the average normal person, it's not right. They might take that holiday a little bit more to heart. Um, so I have to have that balance. I have to be able to keep my recovery. It just being another day, but I also have to kind of like, for a lack of a better way to say it, fake it till I make it through the holiday, um, for my daughter, just because it's something that she still very much enjoys. So it's like finding this balance for a lack of a better word. I like to call it more so harmony 
versus balance mm -hmm. um, and trying to make sure that like I can still provide those things for her um, emotionally, the presence, all that good stuff, all the while still making sure that I'm taking care of my recovery. And, and I think it's cool. And maybe we can come back to this because I want to hear from Lee too, but you guys were like doing recovery together, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and so let's, let's put a pin in that one and yep. we'll hear from Lee. Lee, you're a dad. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I basically a been proud raised... dad too. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> like... So, Absolutely. Uh, I, I've uh, I basically been raising my kids throughout their entire lives alone. Um, their mother is uh, was in and out of active addiction. She wasn't there a lot. So, I mean, it, it just basically fell on me. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have some time in recovery, you know, and I had 10 years and my son was born and it was, it was, it was a big shock to me. And like, you know, I never had a kid before and I always swore to myself that, you know, I'd be a better father than my father because he wasn't really present at all. I mean, at all. And um, so basically I just, I did everything I could do, you know, like when I knew my son was coming, I went out and I bought everything brand new. Right. New crib, new this, new that. And I'm like trying to like make the best of everything. And then I was like, you know, it, it put me in a financial bind a little bit. But, you know, and then he was born in March. So the holidays were officially over at that point. But the very first year, I probably went above and beyond as well. And, you know, I realized like once my daughter was born a few years later, I didn't have to go out and do all of those things, you know, and it wasn't that she was getting any less treatment than he was, but I didn't really need to go buy everything brand new. It didn't make any sense because, you know, all that stuff ended up getting nicked or scratched or ruined or whatever, you know, babies are messy and that's just the way it is. And, and, you know, I took my kids. I used to walk into meetings with two car seats, you know, just be me. And, you know, the people in the, in the program, you know, they always helped me. Somebody would always grab one of my kids, hold them or both. You know, there was always somebody there because they wanted me to focus on recovery. And even though, like I said, I had some time in, it was OK because, you know, the people in the program just showed me nothing but love and support and help and you know, I had a lot of questions and people in the program were very helpful because most of them, you know, that I met that were in my support group were parents. And uh, I just want to back up a little bit because I want to talk about the very first time I cut my son's nails. OK, uh -oh. his fingernails. And, you know, there were these real little, you know, um, snippers or whatever. And, and I just nicked it. Oh, my God, his finger started bleeding. I about died. I was like, oh, my God, I heard him. He's bleeding. <laughs> so, you know, I ran cold water over it. But just to find out, you know, they're, they're, children are very delicate. And, like, it just, it, it, you know, I thought, like, he was going to bleed to death because I just put a little nick in his finger. And, you know, I realized that that's just part of parenting. Some of these things happen. And I got on the phone right away and I started calling everybody I knew. Oh, my God, my son's bleeding. <laughs> you know, and they're like, calm down, run some water over it, put a Band-Aid on it. He'll be fine. And I'm like, OK. 
because, you know, I tend to take everything to real high levels. And in recovery, you know, I've learned so many things about how to kind of de-escalate my feelings and just like bring it down, you know, and I knew what to do and I'm real grateful for that. So again, that, that first holiday, that first Christmas was, yeah, again, I went above and beyond for my son and, uh, you know, it was unnecessary. He didn't even know, you know, there was just things that he did not, couldn't comprehend it as being a newborn baby. So even up to like age two or three, it really didn't make much of a difference. So I learned after the first year not to go so crazy. And when my daughter was born, it was, you know, I got her some things, but it wasn't crazy. And as time went on in recovery, you know, and with growing children, they're 13 and 10 now. And, um, you know, Christmas is coming. And like you said, they're friends want things and they see it and they hear it and they have their own interests. And my son likes these really extravagant Pokemon cards and my daughter's like, you know, just start, she's a preteen and she's starting to want to have makeup and clothes and things like that. So I just kind of have a budget for them and I let them know, like, there's things you're going to get and there's things you're not going to get because, you know, disappointments all around in life. And I want to teach them, you know, some of the things that I didn't understand or wasn't taught as a young, you know, preteen or teen. And uh, I just try to give them the best possible Christmas I can. But I, I, I really like what Julie had said. I think it's more about the love and the giving and the time with them. And, you know, so like when we decorate the tree, we'll play music and you know, Christmas songs or whatever, and we'll go see Christmas lights. And like that stuff's more valuable, I believe, to the children than the actual gifts itself, because it's just- and it, it, I think it's so hard to re to keep that focus. We live in such a consumer driven culture, consumerism, materialism. And, and so, yeah, I can, you know, you were, I think everybody has the story where you do the first couple Christmases and you open the gifts and you have a great time. And 10 minutes later, your kid's over playing with the cardboard box. Like <laughs> then the toys are in the corner and they're playing with the boxes, you know, it's like, oh, man. Um, but it is it is the quality time and kids respond to that, you know, getting out the games, sitting around playing, you know, Monopoly, uh, although. Our family doesn't play Monopoly well. We're too competitive. So that's not allowed. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, um, you know, it, it, you know, I think the pressure is not always from the kids. It's the pressure. And, and maybe, Julie, you can respond to this. But don't you think the pressure is what we put on ourselves, not necessarily coming from the kids at all? 100 percent. Um, I definitely agree with that. And it's funny, as Lee was talking towards the end, um, what really came to my mind was the simple fact that like when we are really engrossed in these programs, we're taught that the materialistic world is not a world in which we can be fulfilled in. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, the thing that I have learned the most in working the program that I work is uh, really like love. Um, love is the answer, right? Love is the most powerful thing and experiences. So we can have all the gifts underneath a tree that we think our children are going to want, and that's going to make them happy temporarily, right? 
but come Jay, like you were saying, come after the gifts are open and that part of it's done, they almost forget what we even bought them. What they're going to remember are the experiences in which we give them and giving them a sober parent is probably the best gift we can provide any of our children, let alone like our loved ones. And don't you think there's a temptation or maybe guilt comes into play? Well, maybe I haven't been the parent I wanted to be for many years. So now I, I, I've got a I got to make up for that all in one day or all in one year, all in, you know, and, and maybe it's Hanukkah, maybe it's Christmas. I mean, the holidays become super pressure filled as kind of a redemption of past mistakes. Have you seen that maybe in people you've coached or, or your own life, maybe lead, maybe speak to that. Yeah. I, I think for me, it's like, you know, now, I mean, being a parent for so long, I, I, I kind of have to look inwardly at what's going on with me and what it is I'm exactly trying to fulfill for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's I'm real big on experience, you know, uh, like money, gifts, all that stuff. It, it's all replaceable. You know, it, it, it's what I believe is experience and memory last a lifetime. And, you know, it's going to go back to that love thing that Ju- Julie was mentioning. Um, I have to learn to love myself. And in the beginning, in recovery, that's very difficult, you know, so we learn to practice, you know, the the first three steps without a shadow of a doubt. And they start to help us, like, kind of learn to accept some things, let go of some things, be more honest with ourselves, uh, be more open-minded, be more willing to change. And uh, I practice those, you know, pretty much every day. And when I'm like trying to overcompensate and I think the gifts are what's going to make my children like extravagantly happy, I don't do that because you know what? They're they're going to be let down by that. And and I try to explain to them the best I can. And my daughter, she gets a little puppy with me. My son's a lot more understandable than she is, you know, but she will like, she tries to compare herself to her friends, sort of like what you were speaking about and, you know, the social media and the way things are and like, yeah, I try to, you know, give them the things that some of the things that they want, but it's unrealistic to think that I can give them everything because life is not going to give them everything. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to set them up for that kind of a failure. But again, you know, the holidays just the, I I like to call it the romance of the holidays, you know, the music, the lights, the scenery that we see, the people, the kindness that's being, you know, um, given from other people. And, and when I can become, you know, whole inside of myself by practicing a program, um, they're, they're going to benefit more than I, I I truly believe, you know, and, and I don't have the perfect, you know, family or whatever. You know, we play Uno and there's almost a war, you know. <laughs> they're ready to start swinging at each other, you know. I'll just get me, you know, and uh, but again, like you were saying, it's all about just playing games, having time, having hot chocolate with them, you know, maybe watching, you know, a movie like Elf or Polar Express or something like that, just trying to, you know, and and, and who, you know, I mean, I don't really like to watch Polar Express, I'm not a big fan, but uh, <laughs> either way. They enjoy that stuff. You know, I think there's like this myth 
with parenting a little bit too. It's like when you become a mom or when you become a dad, that suddenly you're going to enjoy sitting down and playing Candyland, or you're gonna enjoy the po- you. I, I don't know. Maybe you did, but I didn't like that. Didn't ha- I mean, I, I think there are some, I mean, I am could embrace moments and all of that, but it, you know, it's still parenting is work. It's, it's not, yeah. you're not going to feel this romantic uh, notion of, Oh my word. I just love sitting down and playing Monopoly with my kids. And I, you know, I can do that for about 20, 30 minutes and then I, I'm ready to move on to the next thing. Right. I, I, can we just be honest? How, and, and those romantic ideas really set us up for not embracing the reality. Right. Uh, somebody said, make reality your friend. And the reality is some of this stuff I'm going to enjoy. Some of it's just hard work. Julie, yeah. talk a little bit about the work of parenting a little bit. Oh God, it's, it's probably, no, it's not probably, it's by far <clears throat> to, you know, recovery is work and being a parent is work. Both are the most rewarding and exhausting jobs <laughs> of all time. Right. right. Um, and it is, it's just a constant, you know, you you have a, another human being, again, like I said earlier, you're responsible for this human being who's evolving and growing and, you know, their likes change and their dislikes change. And you're trying to keep up with that all the while you are still your own individual person with needs and wants too. Um, and you learn as a parent, what things need to be sacrificed for the greater good of the kid and where you actually need to stand firm within your own truth and your own self. So like, you know, the holidays are really tough. And I don't know about anybody else, but I was always that parent who come Christmas Eve, she would go to bed and there I was wrapping 55 gifts. And now I'm up till five o'clock in the morning. And, you know, she could have gone to bed, let's say at 11 and she was, you know, so she should sleep in a little bit, but just like every kid, they're excited. They get up early. Right. And so now it's 6am I've slept an hour. And uh, she wants to do all these things. She wants to play the, you know, open the gifts and, and then play games and do this and mommy, mommy, mommy. And it's like at some point and it, and it didn't happen right away in recovery. It was a learning process where I had to like take time out for myself. Okay. The gifts are open. Let me get you breakfast. Now I'm going to take some time for myself. I had to make sure that like I was still carving in that self-care. Right. That's good. Yeah. And it's, it's a balancing act. And like I said, I mean, when I said balance earlier, I'm not sure that there really is a balance because something's always getting neglected, but you have to be very much aware of yourself as like, okay, I've been neglecting myself for X amount of hours or X amount of days or X amount of weeks because I've been trying to take care of this responsibility, this job that I have, which is to be a good parent that I need to now put the brakes on and say, okay, like I can't do anymore until I do this for myself. I loved what you said about it being harmony, not balance. And and I'm a music person. So in harmony, like for harmony, the most beautiful harmony has dissonance in it. Like it's got discord. There are times when you got to put a little something that may not feel exactly right but for the greater good and then it resolves and it's like, oh, wow, now I know why. 
that note was in there. Or now I know why I had to get that self-care in there because maybe it didn't, maybe it felt like I was being selfish in the moment, but you know, now I can be present in that second moment. And exactly. I go back to what you said, like that image of you carrying it, like, it just makes me even emotional to think about you taking two car seats into an AA meeting or into a, into one of your fellowship meetings. And wow. Um, what, what a beautiful image. And I've heard often what you put in front of your recovery, you'll lose. And I, I think as a parent, that would be in early recovery. Well, I can't, put my recovery in front of my kids. Like, I think that would be a very hard pill to swallow. So how do you coach people through that who say, no, my kids, my family come first, but yet now this program is telling me anything I put in front of my recovery, including my family, I'm going to lose. So how did you manage that? Uh for me, I, I mean, when it comes to, you know, giving people examples, I, I always like to say, you know, uh, my kids, my job, my family, everything's at the top of the list, but none of it becomes before my recovery. My recovery has to come first and foremost, because when I look at my life before I, I came into recovery, um, you know, there was the family was gone. I didn't have kids at that time, but I had no job. I, you know, my, my behaviors were so different. The way I felt about myself was so different. And, you know, the, the, the multiple times in treatment, the multiple times of being, you know, locked away or just whatever it was, or, you know, clinics and, and, and everything, everything that we can imagine that we go through, you know, so this time I had to become extremely willing to do whatever. And if that meant that I had to, when I had kids take them to the meeting, absolutely, they're going to the meeting. If we got to miss something, we're going to miss it. That's just the way it is. If I'm in a bad place, trust me, I I, I hate to say this, but I mean, when, when I'm sick and I'm suffering from active addiction and I'm very realistic with the illness and how severe it can be inside of me is I would probably sell my kids. And I hate to even mm-hmm. say that, but that's the type of person that I am because I, you know, and I look at it from a realistic aspect because I would be willing to do whatever when I'm using. So it's not a far cry for me to actually do something like that. So my kids understand completely, you know, what recovery is in my life. And not only that, but they get to learn a lot of lessons when they're at meetings. And even to this day, they don't go to every meeting I go to, but they like to go sometimes, you know, and, and they know the serenity prayer and they know the different color key tags that we have. And, you know, that they, they, they know that, that, that you know, I, I want to be present. I, I still need to learn. I still need to practice things because I'm sick. But I get them involved with everything, not just in my recovery. Like, um, you know, my daughter, we do gymnastics for her. My son, we do karate. Um, you know, and they see that, like, the nonprofit that I volunteer for that, you know, it's all about helping people. The things that we do, my job is about helping people. Um, everything that we do is about helping each other and, and others, you know, and, but again, I'm not the perfect parent. I scream sometimes, you know, it's, uh, the kids argue or they'll stay up late and they'll be dancing around. Woo! 
<laughs> you know, and I'm like, it's time for bed. <laughs> and uh, I just think, you know, the, the the more stability that I try to put in their lives, the better it is for them. You know, and the only way that I can become more stable is by continuing to work a program. You know, yeah. uh, I have a sponsor who has children, raised his children with and, you know, I always get the information I need from him. And then if it's something that I need from a woman, I will ask some of my female friends in recovery, hey, you know, uh, what can I do for my daughter? You know, you have any suggestions or something like that? Or, you know, I, I've even had women come and talk to my daughter, you know, that are in recovery. And Your recovery community becomes community. community. Yeah. Becomes almost becomes family. Family. It is family. Yeah, it is. It's like a chosen family. Yeah, absolutely. Julie, how did you respond to that? Like, hey, now your daughter's got to come second. Oh, um, <laughs> for myself, it was a no brainer, honestly, because my experience showed me that if if my recovery doesn't come first, I'm going to keep repeating the same cycle. I had gone to treatment multiple times for family, for my daughter, um, you know, and, and it never worked. It never worked. And uh, when they finally broke it down to me and said to me, like, if your recovery comes first, your daughter will reap the benefits of that. And if mm -hmm. you don't put that first, your daughter will reap the, the non-benefits of your disease. And she had already dealt with a mom and a dad who were active addicts and alcoholics and, um, became homeless as a result of my disease and, and all this stuff was taken away from me by CYS. And so she's had, you know, she's had those non-benefits. I can't think of the other word, but the non-benefits of my disease. And um, my experience showed me that if I didn't put recovery first, I was going to continue to keep losing things. I had so already lost what, my daughter. That's what you did differently. I did the first time ever in my life. The last time I walked into treatment and God willing it be the last time um, was that I couldn't get into treatment fast enough that when I finally got here, it took me about five years to get back in. Um, and uh, by the time I walked through the doors, there was just this level of relief. I was like skipping down the hallways. I remember the admissions person who was, who was admitting me was like, I've never seen somebody come in so happy. And I said, you have no idea how hard it was for me to get in here. Um, and I finally wanted it for myself more so than anything. And, you know, like I said, it was taught to me that if I kept doing it for myself, my daughter would have a much better life. <clears throat> and it's, it's rain true for me today right? Five years later, I work my program very thoroughly to the best of my ability. Um, <clears throat> and my daughter and I, we've been through some challenges with her own mental health. And because I've been able to work a program into her life, um, she's had that stability, like Lee was talking about. The more I work my program, the more of a stable person I become, and the more reliable and stable I become as a mother for her. And I'm like now her safe zone. And it's just, it's so beautiful to, to watch the transformation. But I know we also live in a society where there's so much stigma around recovery. And when someone has lived in active addiction, you know, you hear people say, well, they shouldn't be parent, you know, how did you get through 
the stigma that I know you had to internalize when you were in active addiction? Um, you know, well, I mean, I think it comes without saying when you're in addiction, you already feel really low about yourself. So throw in parenting and you really, really feel low. Um, I can remember probably about 2017, right before I got sober, um, I had so much shame, so much guilt, embarrassment, you name it. It was all labeled all over me. And, um, I just wanted to die. Like I didn't really want to die, but I didn't want to live inside my disease anymore. And I didn't see the way out yet. Um, but what I can say is when I finally made the decision to get treatment that last time, like I said, God willing, it'd be the last, um, I didn't care. I had had enough of being beat down by this disease that I just didn't care. I didn't care anymore what people thought of me. I knew who I was. Like, I always say there's almost two different entities that kind of reside inside of me. There's the addict on one side, and then there's the authentic version on, on the other side. And um, I started to really hone in on that softer side of me who knew that like we were a much better person and that we had so much more to offer. Mm -hmm. um, and that all the stigma labels that came with the disease weren't identifiers of who I internally truly was. So I was able to really look past them and not give a, you know what? Um, I'm hearing that you developed compassion for yourself. I did. I did. Yeah, I did. And probably because I was surrounded by so many other people who had the disease that I could have compassion for that yeah. somewhere my heart started to soften for myself. Um, I can't say it was a Julie thing. It was probably a divine intervention that I'm super grateful that I had. Lee, how did, how did that um, play out for you? Just pushing past the stigma of a dad in active addiction versus uh, I'm, I'm changing. And um, I, I mean, I think that, yeah, I, I don't, it's hard for me to answer that because I don't really view a lot of stigma as a father and addiction. Cause I mean, I'm the type of person I don't really care what other people think when it comes to that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I did, again, I didn't have kids in early recovery. So it, it's a very tough question for me to answer. And, you know, I was so secure in myself and in my recovery when I finally had kids that I didn't really have to worry about that so much, but I can only imagine how I would have felt early on with them. I, I probably would have been a lot more, scared and uncomfortable had I been just early in recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, again, that's where the support comes in. Like I surround myself with people that are similar to me. You know, I, I have a lot of people, I, I like to call them maybe not normal average friends, you know, uh, the average community can, you know, think whatever they want. You know, it, it's the people that, I see have been through the struggles and all that, and they've come out and they're amazing people. Those are the people whose opinions I hold at a very high standard as opposed to just the average person who goes through life who just really doesn't understand what addiction is all about. And they don't understand like that. I was sick at one point in my life. And, you know, so, so I, I understand exactly 
you know, what it is today about the stigma that I, it, it just doesn't bother me. If somebody thinks, Hey, you're, you're you know, you're, you're a recovering drug addict, like, and <laughs> it could be worse. I could exactly. be actively using drug addict and rob your house. I mean, <laughs> you know, so I don't know. Maybe in my community, I mean, I feel like it's died down because we do so much to promote recovery in our community with the nonprofit that I'm involved with. That a lot of people like in our city council and just around like kind of get where we're coming from. So. And how I, I, it sounds like that's the level of honesty that you brought to your kids from day one. Like, hey, I'm in recovery. And so many people like, you know, who are coming to recovery and their kids are, you know, when do you talk about that? And how do you break the news to your kids? Hey, yeah, dad's, you know, and I think you did that. Sounds like you did it from the time they were in their car seats. So, um, but that's not the case for everyone. So um, what do you, how do you coach people or what do you? What's There's a team? lot of people that separate their children from recovery. They Their kids will never see a meeting. And I can respect that. And I understand that. I do. Um, but again, you know, I, I think it's recovery first. You know, no matter what it is, if they're there, if they're not there, recovery's first. You know, Julie had mentioned it. Like, if this isn't numero uno, everything else will fail. It's just, you know, how people in recovery know that to be so true that this has to be first. And if, you know, if you're worried about the stigma, like there, see what's good about today's uh, recovery is, is you don't even have to leave your house to attend the meeting. You know, like you could go virtually just say, you know, try not to worry about the stigma. Like it is what it is. Like, I guess the question is, do you care whether you live or die? And are you willing to place somebody's opinion above your health? Mm-hmm. I say no. You know, I just think for me, like, uh, you know, our, our well-being is what's best, you know, and not somebody's opinion of what or who we should be. You guys have included your kids in your recovery in, okay. in the way that you talk, in the way that you live your program. They're part of that. How do you talk to people who maybe they're new in recovery and they have, I mean, you guys are preteen, teen moms. Um, How would you talk to a child who maybe doesn't know their mom was struggling or dad was struggling or, or maybe didn't know the name for it, right? How do you recommend people talk to their kids about recovery? I think it kind of just really for me and my experience, because I help a lot of women who are moms in recovery um, and even even dads, you know, I, I work with guys, too, but more so women when I'm outside in my community. Um, and I think it really all depends. It's kind of case by case. How old is the kid? What have they seen? Um, you know, do and I think more than you think they've seen likely, right? Likely. Absolutely. Um but I think it's it's a delicate situation, right? Because each individual child that we're going to approach is going to process it differently. Um, I think in a general sense, like 
especially when it comes to people coming into treatment, right? What am I going to tell my children? Where am I telling them that I'm going? You tell them that you're going to mommy daddy camp or something like that, or that you have to go into, right? Because here's the thing. It depends on the age of the child. If we Mm. get too involved in the conversation with them, we've now instilled an unnecessary fear inside of them. And we strip away, strip away their ability to just be a child. Mm. So my daughter was exposed to my drinking and drugging very much. So, um, so when I went to treatment, it wasn't this last time, it wasn't my first time going away on her, right? She had seen me go to treatment since she was two years old up until the time that she was nine or 10. Um, so this wasn't something new to her. And she knew that mommy and daddy were sick. Um, and so my explanation to her was that I'm not well, um, but I can get well. And I'm going to work towards that. And then, you know, the conversation of she became old enough for me to really give her like, hey, your mom's a drug addict and an alcoholic. (laughs) This is this is what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whether it's a predisposition that I'm born with through the family genetics or, you know, I don't know. I don't have those answers. Um, But I do tell her that, like, both of your parents are drug addicts and alcoholics. So the likelihood of you becoming one as well, you have a greater chance than somebody who doesn't have parents who are alcoholics and addicts. Um, And so I really educate her. She's gone to meetings with me. She sees all my sponsees come into the house. Uh, She she sees my hundreds of big books everywhere. Um, So she's really exposed to the world. She understands what it is. And then my family freely talks about it. You know, do you think that allows her? to ask questions and to have a dialogue between the two of you. It does. Definitely. I will say that before I got sober, um, I think my daughter, we've always had a really strong bond. Um, but I think that she was very fearful of whether mom was going to live or die. Um, today we, you know, other than fluke incidences that may happen, car crashes, you know, whatever, you don't know when your time is up, but she trusts the fact that mom is going to work. When mom is done work, mom is coming home. You know, it's very consistent for her, which allows her. Um, and I'm very open with my daughter, but she's old enough to understand. When she was younger, I didn't communicate too much to her. Um, I remember her dad was very much like he would tell her everything. And that would bother me because I said, you know, you can't. She's a child. Mm-hmm. Certain information she shouldn't be privy to. Now that she's old enough and she's a teenager, yes, she needs to know that this is part of my life. This is why it's a part of my life and that the likelihood that it could be part of her life is pretty great too. So I want to keep that education for her. Normalizing. If you're, if you're having trouble with that, that's something like a family therapist can really help you. What is age appropriate communication? How exactly you and sitting down, if you want to make that disclosure, you know, if this is the first time they're hearing mom struggles with, you know, that's something that could be done with a family therapist. Yeah. And like I said, I just think it's really case by case, understanding the in-depth of the situation before we go and just, you know, tell our children everything. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, it's case by case. Lee, what's your thoughts? I completely identify my kid's mother. You know, she, she is one of those people, man, like full disclosure, you know, like doesn't really think because, you know, in and out of active addiction, uh, you know, and our thinking is distorted. You don't really look at the kids and go, well, they're kids. You're just looking, 
you're looking at like you're talking to whoever, you know, and, and really what it does is it, it tends to traumatize them. And, you know, I have to have conversations like my kids are very wise to the situation. You know, I, I mean, I almost hate to say it like if mom's in treatment, mom's in treatment or mom's here again or mom's there again or, you know, and, and I, I think it's the way that, you know, we, we speak it to them, you know, with mm -hmm. compassion and understanding and even empathy and, and, and help them know exactly what the illness is. But I think Julie's right. I mean, it has to be age appropriate. You don't want to like, you know, steal their innocence by exposing the world to them at a, you know, too young of an age. I think it's important that we allow them, you know, it, it, maybe even therapy. I, I agree. But how far do you go? At what age do you start? it's a tough question because, you know, I don't know if anybody has the right answer to that, but I think it's as a parent myself, uh, like a lot of the issues, like some of the things that would be said, I would have to readdress them and explain like, Hey, you know, it, it's not that way. This is just her perception of it. And I want you to understand, like you have your own perception of things and it's going to be okay. I'm here for you. We have a stable home. That's all you need to understand right now. Let's play a song. <laughs> you know, yeah. like let's play a song. Let's let 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 let's just kind of move that out. Unless you have some feelings or you know that you want to share right. with me about or whatever, I'll listen. You know, right. Let's let's shift a little bit about you know people feeling like the holidays are coming, they're here, um, they need help, but they don't want to leave their children in order to get help. I think that would be so scary. Um, how do you talk through, I mean, you guys help people access care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, you know, I'm privy to a lot of the work that you guys do behind the scenes to help people access care. And I know a lot of the times people will say, I just can't go right now. I got to get through Thanksgiving. I just can't go right now. I've, I've got this family obligation. I can't miss this. Or I can't miss that. Um, how do you coach people through those moments? Just start with you, you Julie. Oh, okay. I didn't know who wanted to go first. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so know a couple of different things one are we even going to be present when we're going through these holidays and how much uh turmoil are your loved ones going to be going through because you're a mess right um the other thing that I like to point out to people is like this is a small fraction of time that if you actually truly invest into yourself during this time as difficult as it is um you don't ever have to do it again and that time that you go for that short blip on the map, those 30 days um, during that holiday, if you've invested into yourself, you take this serious, you put your recovery first, they'll never remember the time that you weren't there. You can fulfill them moving forward. You can be there for those things. The other thing is too, like we are literally playing Russian roulette with our lives. Mm. I don't care if it's alcohol. 
I don't, you know, I have many stories about people who were just alcoholics who passed away from the disease. Somebody who was very near and dear to my mm -hmm. heart fell down her steps, broke her neck and she died. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, these are real things that we don't know um, are or are not going to happen. So there is the likelihood that maybe this could be the last time that your children might have a parent. Why not give them the best gift of all time to just invest in yourself for 30 days? And when you get out, it's not just 30 days, right? We know that this is a lifelong journey, but when you get out and you get yourself around these people um, who are going to lift you up until your foundation is solid and you can stand on your own, you can give them a lifetime of that beautiful gift that's priceless. It is the most priceless gift. You're healing when you're a parent, I heard this quote, <clears throat> I'm not going to give it to you. I can't remember exactly what it says, but something along the lines of like, your healing is the most beautiful gift you can ever give your children because through your healing, you teach your children how to heal and how to be better people and how to navigate this very difficult life, right? Like life's not easy and the demand on humans and the, you know, all the things that we see these days, which is a little bit different than it was 20 years ago. Um, but if we're not getting ourselves well, we're not giving them any tools either. So ultimately, it's selfish and self-centered. We're stripping away from a responsibility that was a gift from whatever, right? Like I say mine's a God-given gift. It's my responsibility to make sure I take good care of that gift. Um, so doing that for 30 days during the holidays, one, your, your family is probably going to have the best rest they've ever had mm -hmm. because they know that you're safe. Um. Your children will hopefully be getting a, the version of the parent they're deserving of. And you don't ever have to do it again if you actually take the time to invest into yourself. And then you have all these other holidays that are going to be memorable. Are you going to remember the holiday if you're intoxicated? No, you're not. You're not present. You're not doing anybody any favors. You're being kind of selfish in thinking that you need to be there for that. And then the likelihood that maybe you'll never have another one ever again is what we're seeing time and time again now for so many. And Lee, what, what is that like? And I think that really affects and we see it because women typically have the caregiving responsibilities. It's very yeah. hard for women to access care. They're caring for not only their children, but oftentimes the home and, and maybe even parents and, um, you know, they, it's, it's tough for mom to be away. Um, but reiterating the fact this is life or death mm -hmm. and we don't like to think of ourselves as, as being self-serving, but taking, you know, and you go back to the, put your own life mask on, you know, the airplane announcement, put your life mask on first before you start helping others. And, um, yeah. Or sometimes we're on borrowed time and, and getting that help as soon as possible, as soon as you're willing, um, is really key. So thank you for that message. Um, and yeah, it's 30 days. And then talk to us a little bit about the importance of that aftercare and what we do. Um, <laughs> you know, I know we say, yes, go come to treatment for 30 days, but we, that's the beginning of treatment, right? And, and getting into an outpatient program and, um, 
How have you seen that work? Oh, I, I think everything Julie said, she hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, when patients come in and they are basically, you know, they're unsure if they want to stay and they really don't like the idea, you know, a, 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 they, they don't like the idea of 30 days. Nobody wants to hear 30 no. days. Oh, my God, 30 days. <laughs> because they think, you know, we all you, we think, okay, if we get the drug out of the body, I right. can go back. I can do the I can do the other work on my own, right? I just right. need this out of my – you hear that argument a lot. A lot. Yeah, Lee, why does that not work? Well, you know, once they get it out of their system – see, I'm a real firm believer that – you know, in early recovery, like in the first 30 days, distance is everything. You know, I, the, all the years I've been in recovery, you know, uh, I have seen zero people, not even one, walk out of detox and be successful at recovery. That's just my personal perception. I haven't seen it. I'm sure it exists, but I don't know where I've never seen it. It's usually the people that get the 30 day distance that they have the ability to be more and clear. Can you clarify by detox? Because a lot of people don't know what we're detox, talking about. The detox, family members, like the five to seven days, maybe even well, 10 days where this where we're doing the medically assisted detox, where we're helping you come off of a substance. We're getting substance, you physically well. Right. Physically um, helping that in a safe environment, because a lot of these substances it can be very dangerous to just stop using on your own you Especially need alcohol. to do this you need to do this in a medically monitored environment which is what rca offers but then so that's five to seven days and a lot of people will come in and say that's the, that's what i need i just need this and i'll do the other work i'll do on my own especially during the holidays people want to do that they want to just get medically cleared to the point where they can actually physically stand up, have a little bit of a conversation and walk out the door. That is not treatment. Treatment is, you know, the 30 day process where we give you the information. Not only do we give you the information, but also we're, you know, hoping that you will practice the information you're getting while you get her. So when it comes time to step out the door, you're not going, oh, what do I do now? I just spent 30 days in treatment. I watched TV the whole time or I did this or I did that. And I went to groups, but I really didn't pay attention. And even if I did pay attention, I practiced nothing that they taught me. So I, I think it's real important that, you know, I, like when I do groups, I'll reiterate, like it, it's important to practice honesty with self. It's important to start to practice acceptance. Like, let's not look at the whole 30 day process. Let's look at where we're at today. You know, and, and I try to get them to remember, why did you come here just for today? Why did you come here? Because I want to get better. OK, so let's focus on that. How are we going to get better? What can we practice today in order to start that? And you just start to get their mind in a place where it's just about today. Only today. Let's let's not worry about that. Hey, who knows? In two weeks, if you want to leave. OK, we'll talk about that then. But just for today. Let's talk about how we can get through the rest of the day and promote recovery in our lives and prepare for that day to come when you do leave. Because like Julie said, it's just a pebble of sand in your life. You know, uh, the beach of your life, it's a pebble of sand, 30 days. Uh, depending on the children's age, you know, some people go, oh, well, my children are older. You know, I'm going to miss the holidays again. But yeah, even if you were there, you'd miss them. You'd probably be passed out in bed. You'd probably be running on the street. You probably really wouldn't be there. Like, think about back to last Christmas. How did that go for you? Trying to just 
give them reminders of where they were and what it was that they were doing. And, and, you know, the good thing about RCA is that we do amazing things for people on the holidays. Like, you know, I know Christmas coming up, we have the 12 days of Christmas here where, you know, our uh, kitchen staff will be doing like a different thing each day to theme up to Christmas. And, you know, during the Christmas holiday, we have speakers in the morning, we have speakers at night, we have big buffet style food, like, you know, yeah, it, it it's not home, but it's, it's as close as you're going to get to a home. You, and, you both work with the Alumni Association, and we yes. actually have our AIM yeah. program, which is Alumni and Mentorship, where we bring alums back into the facility to talk to patients and say, hey, this is what parenting looks like right now is taking care of yourself and sit down, yeah. have those one-on-one -on -one conversations um, with people who are doing the work, right? And have been right in those same seats maybe yeah, a year I mean, ago. I mean, absolutely. We, I mean, we're having so much success. It's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, people reach out all the time. You know, just today there was a guy who posted online that, you know, he got his uh, certified recovery specialist. He's been clean two years now. He left RCA two years ago and he just, you know, he took the suggestions. He practiced the things. He missed a couple of those holidays or whatever, but guess what? He's he's doing amazing, you know, and uh, hopefully, you know, people see that like, just like Julie had mentioned, just missing one holiday isn't really going to hurt you if you get the information and practice it that's going to ultimately save your life. You know, that's why we're here. And, you know, that's the good thing about the alumni program is that instant support that we offer, you know, the instant community, you know, our alumni meetings and the events that we do and the, the, the ability to connect with you through social media and through the phone. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit. Maybe this is not someone in recovery or maybe this isn't someone um, who needs help. Maybe this is a family member listening to this. Um, what advice do you have for family members who are watching their loved one struggle uh, with parenting, watching their loved one, um, you know, in active addiction? Um, how, how do they help? Oh, again, it, I mean, case by case, right? It depends. Um, I, I think the one thing, and I've worked with a lot of families just within the mission center and then over here in this position now, um, you know, the one thing that I, I do try to teach them. So a lot of times what we see is the family members live in this fear and they're like on this balance beam, trying to not push the person further into their disease and, all the while still trying to have some type of boundary. Um, the one thing that was taught to me was like, never make any threats to them, right? If it's a boundary that you're not willing to hold firmly, then don't make that. Don't throw out the threat. Addicts are, and alcoholics are really good at manipulating. And when we, we see threats, you know, clear as day, right? Um, the other thing too, and, and this was one of the best things that I had ever learned and I've been able to use with my own loved ones who are struggling inside their disease is that I'm going to support you 100% in your recovery, but I will not support you in your disease anymore. And that has to be a hard stop. Because um, I think essentially what starts to happen is, is we don't want to see our loved ones die. Um, and that fear just overtakes us. So we actually can start to operate from that fear. And really what that starts looking like is enabling their behaviors. And it doesn't get any better. 
um, as scary as it is, you kind of just have to like take that step back. And, you know, sometimes we'll hear like, well, my, you know, like people will call in and be like, please don't tell my loved one that I called. And I get all that. And I will never, you know, if they don't want me to disclose how I found out, I'm not going to. However, at the same time, if we're avoiding these hard conversations, we're allowing the disease to control everybody's lives. Right. So therefore that person isn't going to make any changes because what they're doing right now is actually still working for them. Talk me a little bit about um, just some practical tips. Like you said, in active addiction, there's this level of manipulation and the holidays can be, oh man, my uh, my lights are going to get turned off. I need money for this or I need money for the kids' gifts. What are some practical tips for family members or people who are watching others struggle? I mean, if it comes to that where you're having like probabilities or rent or any of that stuff, you have places like, at least in Pennsylvania, you have like Rhymes, Wings, Catholics, Charities. Uh, there, there's so many different places that, that that are willing to help, especially through the holidays. And I think it, it it's very important that we don't enable the behavior mm-hmm. to to keep it ongoing. Um, we start to give some ultimatums. Um, you know, we seek outside help. You know, to possibly even have people removed. And I know that's hard because we love them, and we you know we don't want to see them. You know, something bad happen to them, but it. At what cost? At what cost to the family? You know, do, do do we end up homeless because we're enabling the behavior, or do we end up without lights or heat because we continue to love them so much? At what point, you know? And, and this is why Julie and I were both talking about recovery must come first because at some point we have to learn to love ourselves, you know. And, and you know, just because I love you doesn't mean I love you more than I love me. I have to love me in a way that protects me and the family from this disease. Even if I'm not the one with the disease, I need protection. So, you know, it's, again, it's case by case, but it really depends how severe the case is. But just know, like, you know, if your family, there is help available and we do as much as we can possibly do at RCA to move that along. So I think that's true. Yeah, well, I'm just going to piggyback off of that yeah, real fast ahead, if you don't please. mind. I just wanted to say, because I think that there are some, like Lee was saying, like the case by cases, some people who are so newly into dealing with their loved one's disease and not thinking that they're really even enabling by paying for things or whatever. But if we've been in this situation for some time and nothing's changing and the lights are about to be turned off, the lights have to be turned off, right? Because like Lee was saying, and I said earlier, what you're essentially teaching that person, if we keep doing for them, is that they don't need to change because what they're doing is working. People are still sending those life rafts. So we don't know that anything has to change, right? And what happens is, is we, this is my experience. I blew through so many people, right? So when those people Mm. stopped doing things for me, then I went on to the next person. Then I went on to the next person until I had exhausted all of my options. And I finally went, huh, something's not working here, right? And then I had to actually take a look inward. And it started, I think the, the last people who were really the ones to stop throwing me those life rafts was my own family. And when I started to feel the weight of my family and seeing the disappointment and them not wanting me around them, 
Um, I wasn't really welcomed at a lot of places. If I was, all eyes were on me. What is she up to? How long has she been in the bathroom? This, that, and the other. Um, that I started to realize that something else needed to change. And I had to uh, go inward for that. Allowing the person you love to fail. Yeah. So here's the analogy that I've used for loved ones. When we have babies who are learning to walk and they fall down, we do not pick them back up because they need to learn to walk on their own. That does not change when we become adults. It just becomes a different scenario. And as our children are becoming adults in active addiction, they they're still individuals. They're still accountability. They still have to learn to be responsible for themselves. And it hurts to watch people fall. It does. With every fiber of our being, we want to pick that person up and hug them and be like, here, I'm going to help you. But I can only help you if you're willing to make the change for the greater good. I can't support the disease anymore because you can't hear, you can't hear or see any of the good that's happening anyway. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's beautiful. Really is. Lee, Julie, thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, it, it, I, I, I just, I think that's a, it's such an important conversation and um, thanks for your vulnerability and your, your openness. I really applaud you and, and honor you for being willing to share your story. And um, thank you so much. We usually end with favorite recovery quote, but because it's the holidays, favorite holiday song. Most wonderful oh. time of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah. Is that your favorite? It is. Aw. Mine's actually Silent Night. It gets me every time. Aww. Every time. I can't help but cry every time I hear it. That's beautiful. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you or someone you know needs help, please call 1-833-RCA-ALUM. If you're a loved one and your loved one needs help, we have free intervention services we can connect you with um, to have those conversations uh, with your loved one. Just wanna make sure that you uh, and your loved ones are safe this holiday season. Please give us a call. The Alumni Association, our alumni coordinators are standing by to help reach out. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Strength and Recovery podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tap the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from our listeners and hope to reach more of you out there as we continue to share these incredible stories of recovery. The RCA alumni team aims to provide a safe, supportive environment for those in the recovery community, regardless of their affiliation with RCA. We host a full calendar of virtual and in-person meetings seven days a week, 365 days a year, as well as free sober events every month. To learn more about what we do, find us at rcaalumni.com. Remember, if you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, pick up the phone and dial 1-833-RCA-ALUM. Help is available 24-7. Listen to another episode now or join us next time for the Strength and Recovery podcast.